I hope you get uh, some of the themes as I hear these passages. Um, in summary, it's you have new life in Christ. And this is our benefit. This is something that God has planned that you would grow in and experience and enjoy because it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. And yet, <clears throat> as you think about uh, where we are in the church and what we're doing to have people grow in their experience of what they understand, all that Paul is talking about for the Colossians and for the Thessalonians and the Corinthians and for those at Chesterland. So as we get into this study, uh, you notice the sign on the billboard outside was of, uh, in response to last week's uh, When Faith Fades. I wanted to continue to uh, move in that direction of When Faith Flourishes. And so you have two titles. You can either choose the one on the billboard or the, you can choose the one I'm going to talk about too. They're both in the same thing. And, but it has to do with this idea that your faith matters and what you believe really does affect everything. It's consequential faith. Let me begin by telling you, and I want to just share with you, uh, some of these things will not, uh, there's a whole lot here. So you want to take notes, but I want to give this in a little a summary version later, so you'll have a packet of this, and so you'll get this information. There's a lot here, but just listen today and, and open your heart to say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to learn? What's your takeaway as you go through today listening to this? Um, Thomas Sowell is a an econom economist. Uh, he is an American social theorist. He's a Stanford University professor. And he came up with a definition called consequential knowledge. And being a, a philosopher and intellectual, he's written a book on uh, intellectuals and, uh, and society. But his comment is that intellectuals have a job where what they do is they think about ideas. And so if you are an intellectual, you don't have to um, work the same way that most of the people in America do. As a matter of fact, he says that if you combine all the intellectuals in America, they would only contain 1% of the operational knowledge that makes this country work. In other words, if you're an intellectual, your consequences are about what your ideas think about. But this consequential knowledge that makes life work has to do with the end result, the product, the outcome. What happens uh, as you apply and do life together? And so the idea of the consequential knowledge defined its knowledge by virtue of its presence or by virtue of its absence has consequences. He was flying in a plane and as he was approaching the landing, the plane got, was descending, and he was getting ready to pack up and to get off the plane. But as he was loading up his thing, all of a sudden the pilot uh, throttled down, and the plane didn't land. It took right off with a thrust and threw him back in the seat. And he didn't know what was going on, but uh, the plane went up and ascended and circled around again. And the story he tells is that as the plane was descending, uh, the landing gear wasn't down. But the guy who was in the air traffic control tower saw that. And he says, 
uh, to the pilot, your gear isn't down, so you need to take it around, make sure your gear is down. Well, that's consequential knowledge. If you don't have the landing gear down, kaboom, you have an accident. When you have accidents and effects and damage and consequences because of knowledge, the air traffic controller wasn't an intellectual. He knew what to do. And that's what a doctor does. A doctor knows what to do. If he's going to do surgery, he's got information. He knows exactly for his expertise because he's practiced and rehearsed the skill of surgery. Likewise, Sandy's got this little little uh, trick. I'll tell you the trick in case you ever need it. She has a pen. Where'd my pen go? And she says, if you have trouble drawing blood out of your veins, Sandy's got this trick. You can take this with you when you go to the hospital if you need it. She, Sandy's always coming. People come to Sandy and say, can you help me get this uh, blood draw because I can't get the vein in. Well, she says, well, she's, you slap it and she puts a hot pack, uh, a rag or something, and she lets it uh, get warm. And then she takes a pen and she says, um, where do people most likely get a draw from you? And they say, right there. And she takes her pen, she scoots it up, she says, this right there, and she's right there, and she puts little pressure on the pen and marks a little hole in her skin, and that's when she goes in, and she usually gets the blood draw. There's practical outcomes, there's things we know how to do that intellectuals don't know how to do. There are people who are very smart, they can't hang a picture. They can't, they can't work on cars. They don't know how to repair a garage when it has a tree falling on it. Um, but this idea of consequential knowledge, the experts who have this area may not be qualified in that area. And we, we call them elected officials. And when you put them in Washington to try to govern systems, then you find yourself with consequences of a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding because this wasn't their field. And so it wouldn't make a difference as long as the blank and the, uh, on the organizational chart is filled in. But he's talking about consequential knowledge. It's an interesting read. Consequences, results, produce the outcomes. It's practical, tangible, measurable. So intellectuals who philosophize and come up with these theories in one sense, are in command of a lot of knowledge, and they influence without knowing some of the consequences. The consequence of knowing affects the whole community. Well, I stole that phrase from him, consequential knowledge, and I thought, well, that's probably true for us as well. If you have consequential faith, It also depends upon the outcome, the results, the fruit, the evidence that you see, because you, your life has bearing, has an influence on other people. And when you understand the consequences of faith by virtue of its presence or by virtue of its absence, there will be consequences in your relationship with God and with other people. So tonight I want to, or this this morning I want to talk about, I'm getting time right, Uh, we want to talk about something that God does in your life, in my life, and I'm going to do a couple things. I want to talk about what Paul 
is dealing with here as we grow in faith and having a consequential, substantial, competent, there's something that you've got that is solid, and yet a lot of people have no idea what we've got. And therefore, I want to talk about what, what we've, the verses talk about, that we have this knowledge in jars of clay. So part of the knowledge that we have here is about the knowledge of the human body as, part of, as a vehicle of the Spirit. Let me explain. When I, when I was growing up, I used to think that there were normal people and then there were religious people. And one Friday night, one Friday afternoon, I remember Mom was uh, cooking in the kitchen. I said, what's for dinner? She said, fish. And I didn't want fish that night for whatever reason. I said, I'd like to have some chicken. Well, we can't. Well, why not? Well, Dwayne is coming. Well, Dwayne likes chicken. I never see Dwayne. He's a cousin that lived out in California. I've only seen him once in my life. And, uh, but I knew he and his mom were coming out. And, uh, and they were Catholics. And Dwayne, they had gone through a divorce, and so this new guy was in Indiana, so here they were. I didn't want to eat fish. Let's have chicken. Well, we can. It's Friday. Well, what's that have to do with anything? Well, Dwayne's coming, and he's Catholic. And I did it because I don't have that religious tradition embedded in my brain, in my experience. So I thought, Catholics don't like chicken? That knowledge has consequences. So I said, Mom, I, I don't get it. And she couldn't explain it besides Catholics don't eat they eat fish on Friday. She didn't know where that came from. I don't know where it comes from. But, but the idea is that there are normal people and religious people. Well, there was a church in back of my house. It followed the same pattern. It was a, a Pentecostal pilgrim holiness church. They didn't believe in blue jeans. And the pastor mowed his yard in long sleeve white shirts and dressed up pants. And I thought... There are normal people. And summertime, when the prayer meeting hit, that church opened the windows because there wasn't any air conditioning. And boy, I heard things. I thought, what on earth is going? Do, 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 do. I had no idea what was going on. And therefore, it wasn't attractive because I didn't understand it. But this Pilgrim Holiness Church left a mark on me. The consequences was not good because I wasn't interested in doing what they were doing. When I was growing up, I thought there were normal people who basically would grow up and work hard and, 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 and work hard and work hard and be responsible and treat people with respect. And I was, I was growing up thinking that, you know, Friday night was a football game or basketball game and, and you, you just did what was... Not my three sons, but just a it was a it was a stable time, and people was kind of normal. A man's word was a man's word, and a and a lady was a lady, and uh, but it had nothing to do with the spirit. So my thinking was that we were people, we were humans, going around life in our human bodies, and then all of a sudden something would happen where somebody would have this spiritual experience. They would get zapped by the Holy Spirit, slain in the Spirit, or speaking in tongues or something. And I thought, whoa. 
I had one cousin came. I don't remember his name either. He was a distant, distant, distant cousin. And he sat in the kitchen one time, and he talked about how he came to faith in Christ. And he was so moved that he cried. And the tears that he cried were about Jesus dying for him. Mom heard that. Mom knew him better than I did. But I knew that there was something. He just seemed to love Jesus in a way that nobody else I knew, because I didn't know any Christians who really loved Jesus anyway. But they were zapped by God, I thought. And so what I came to believe was this, that, that we are not just humans having a human experience in a human body and get zapped by the Holy Spirit. Rather, that we are human spirits living in a physical body. And that when this body goes, the human spirit continues to grow. And there's consequences to what happens in the human heart, depending upon the knowledge you have or the absence of knowledge that you have regarding your faith. From the Enlightenment period and the Renaissance period, there has been a shift in our culture that we have separated the knowledge of God and the Spirit and the knowledge of science and rational thinking. And therefore, through Descartes and onward, we have a split, compartmentalized, fragmented, disintegrated way of thinking that has consequences. We read the Bible, and we have a trinity. We have a mind, body, and spirit. We split those things. That's not the Jewish way. It's not the Jesus way. It's a holistic thing. But mind, body, spirit model all distinct and confusing. Mind was reason and required evidence, logic and faith. But faith just required belief without evidence or somehow an emotional experience or something. I didn't understand it because I didn't come up in that background. But, but I didn't know and understand the difference between faith or reason. But I want to explain something to you today. You see, the Apostle Paul would eat chicken on Friday. He would eat lamb chops. He would eat shrimp. He would eat lots of things because his spirit was set free from the rituals and the rules that he grew up in his culture. When he encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road, he was healed of his blindness. And he began to see things in a way that only Jesus would see things. As Jesus healed that man in Mark 9, and he said, I just see men as trees walking. Jesus touched that man twice, and then he saw clearly. Sometimes the process of seeing needs more than one touch. But there's a process. This is what faith and reason does. You need both a touch of faith and a touch of reason to see clearly if you're going to have consequential faith you need both to have a mind and spirit working together. And as Paul said, that this spirit, this treasure, this Holy Spirit that gives you that eyesight and insight is in our physical bodies. And therefore, there's something about that's beautiful, that's functional, that's operational called faith that's living inside of you as you come to the knowledge of the Spirit. Now, this knowledge of the Spirit, the Bible talks a lot about the Spirit. But let me share with you the dimensions that he takes us into. Maybe, I mean, you maybe you know some of them, but listen to this. 
When the Bible talks about spirit, it covers a lot of ground. When the Bible talks about spirit, as a Holy Spirit, he talks about the spirit as being like the wind that's moving. He said this to Nicodemus. He didn't say to Nicodemus, well, Nicodemus, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah. You just need to repent and be baptized in me and accept me as your Savior and Lord. He didn't say that. He said to Nicodemus, you have no idea what you're getting into. And you cannot make it happen. You can't technique God by a formula of faith that if you say this magic word, you become a Christian. He says, no, Nicodemus, you're going to have to learn what faith means because when the wind blows, you follow. So the idea that the spirit is the wind, Jesus would say, and, and then he, he picks this up from the Old Testament. When, when God made the body, he breathed into Adam, and Adam's body became a living soul. Now, God is not a soul. God is a spirit. And his spirit touches our spirit, and our life is called the soul in the human body. So those three go together. But it's used to describe the influences, the spirit that influences us, and that influence can dominate you, or it can set you free and liberate you. The New Testament recognizes this. And when he recognizes it, he recognizes that there is a spirit, and get these adjectives, there's a spirit of holiness. There's a holy spirit. Paul says in Romans 1, 3 and 4, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That little phrase, the spirit of holiness, death is the disease, ungodly, but the spirit of holiness would overcome. It's a spirit of faith. 2 Corinthians 4, as we read, and I having the same spirit of faith according to that which, I, which is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, and we also believe, therefore we also speak. Your spirit is speaking out of the faith that you have or the absence of faith that you don't have. The spirit of truth. I will give you another helper, and he will be with you forever. It's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him because he dwells in you. It's the spirit that Paul talked about, the spirit of revelation and the spirit of wisdom. In Ephesians 1, he said, I pray for the saints who are in Ephesus that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. Why? Make you educated? No, no, no. The spirit that you would know how to relate to Jesus better. That's an answer to prayer. There's a spirit of meekness. If you see somebody caught in sin and is really angry and got all kinds of issues, there's a spirit of meekness in Galatians 6 that you can help a person in the spirit of gentleness. These are, these are evidences of a spirit of life, Romans 8, that Paul would give us a new life in Christ. It's a wonderful term. It's the law of the spirit of life. It's a spirit of power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be stronger. 
you will have strength to do that, which Timothy would hear from Paul. He says, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. That spirit is able to move and to accept the unacceptable, to give grace where judgment is deserved. There's a spirit of healing. And Pam read that when, when you put on this new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, restored in the knowledge of this relationship, it leads you to a spirit of serving. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's something that takes place in the human spirit when it's aligned with the Holy Spirit that changes the vertical to the horizontal. And yet if this isn't happening, you have inconsequential faith and you have inconsequential relationships. You just have an empty, fading, weak, undeveloped, worthless, fruitless faith. It doesn't make a difference what you believe because it doesn't influence your spirit. That's not what we are about. The other side, if you remove the Holy Spirit's influence, you have these adjectives, and you know these. Proverbs 17.22, a cheerful heart is great medicine. But a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Proverbs 17.22. There is a spirit of fear, of cowardice, cowardice, cowardice-ness. There's a spirit of slavery. Paul said you did not receive a spirit of slavery, of addiction, that returns you to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. And by that spirit, you call him Father. By that spirit, you call him, on him to curse and damn and condemn others. Different spirits. There's a spirit of slumber. A, sl- a spirit of slumber, eyes that should not see and ears should not hear. There's a spirit of apathy. People no longer care. Like I said last week, that daughter to the professor said, Dad, the church is asking, is seeking answers to questions that we don't ask anymore. We don't care about that. Revelation 3 says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Keep, keep it and repent if you will not wake up. And therefore, there's a spirit of apathy. There's a spirit of error. Don't believe every spirit. You've got to have a discerning spirit because somebody says something, you don't believe it because they say it. There's a spirit of error. And we know we are of God because we hear God. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so there's a vast difference between these two spirits. Jesus would call them impure spirits. He would call them a spirit of demons, a spirit of perversion. Even in Acts, there's a girl that goes to Paul, and she had a python spirit. Well, we wrestle in our culture with being in a human body, with knowledge, consequential knowledge that's damaging our spirit. And we live in a knowledge with the knowledge that there's a spirit out there that's going to have consequential damage to your faith. 
And therefore, as Christians, we need to know that we have a, an antagonist that will destroy the antagonist. The Holy Spirit is our divine warrior. And it says that you know that there is a spirit in the world that's working in the sons of disobedience. We know that the Holy Spirit's working in the sons and daughters of obedience. And therefore, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, body, human, only, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness, darkness of this world, and against the wickedness in the heavenly places. I mentioned last week that we were at warfare. And that warfare is that there's someone out to destroy you. But the good news is you have the ability to go out and to destroy him if you have that consequential faith. The ultimate disruptor of the spirit is you. You can call on the spirit of error by bringing out the spirit of truth. Your words matter, but Jesus is the one who gives us that ability to overcome. For this reason, Paul said, when that tempter went to these Thessalonians, who were just babies in Christ, he says, I fear for you, lest that tempter would, would come and uh, tempt you, that our labors would be in vain. Paul was concerned about the development of their faith. Well, all this to say is that there are normal people and there are spiritually strong people who competently, confidently, humbly walk with the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is doing, that you give the wisdom to see the signs of the time and that you're no longer enslaved by the culture. There's a guy named Joe Dallas. And Joe Dallas uh, was a convert back in the 70s to the Jesus people, but he went to a church, Chuck Smith's church, Calvary Chapel, and he hid in the church as a homosexual until 23. He said, I can't take it anymore. I've got to come out. And when he came out, he left that church and said, I've got to, I've got to find a way to be gay and be Christian at the same time. There's consequential knowledge. There's consequential faith. There's faith that Joe had that said, huh, I'm going to figure out a way to be homosexual and have biblical faith to do the will of God. And so he joined a gay church, became part of the gay church, became a counselor for the gays who, who were coming out. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't let Joe alone. And so he continued to pursue Joe because his hand was on Joe and he would not let him go. And finally, after several years into this movement, and he's a big name in the movement, uh, Joe said, I realized something. I wanted to believe what I wanted to believe, and I wasn't willing to listen to believe what he wanted me to believe. That's a different spirit. An entirely different spirit. And so when your spirit aligns with the spirit of God, there is all of those benefits for us that the freedom in Christ, the grace in Christ, the mercy of Christ, the meekness of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the hope and the promises of Christ are yours if you are growing in 
this maturing spirit that has significant consequences in your very soul. And therefore, when you move into this chart, you move from no faith to Christ-centered saving faith, but you've got to keep moving because the Spirit is going to encourage you with the fellowship, with the word, with, with prayer, with experience, because he is going to speak to your spirit and guide your spirit if you walk in that spirit. And therefore, you move from a baby faith. Remember that hymn? Baby faith. Sorry. But you move to that mature faith. Now, notice what I want you to see here is that there's a place where you just get encouragement, but then there's a place where you get established. And that stable faith, that consequential faith, means that you know Jesus Christ in such a way that you are comfortable with wrestling, with struggling, with resting, and believing in Christ. You're learning. He's introducing you. He's guiding you. He's teaching you. He's opening doors to you. And it becomes a vital faith, not just an institutional tradition. Here, do this on Friday. Do this on Sunday. It's a relationship that's alive. But there are people who don't have established faith. They have a civil religion. They have a comfortable Christianity. And there's nothing more significant, more consequential going on in their life in the sense, except that they're just comfortable and they're just going through the motions. Growing Christians walk in alignment with what God is doing. And if you hear the Spirit and you're following the Spirit, you grow in sensitivity. And if you're sensitive to God, you'll be sensitive to people. If you're insensitive to God, you'll be insensitive to people. But that mature faith looks like this, that you are grounded in Christ. And that's where you stand. You don't need anything else because you are settled in your soul that what you need, he has provided for you. And that's enough. Where else are you going to go? Where else do you need to go? He's the only place you can go. You have convictions. If you're maturing in the faith, you know who you know, and you know why you know what you know, and you know how well you know, and you want others to know him because you are really consequential. You will have an influence. And therefore, there will be a devotional life that's developed. If you're moving in faith and you want to hear more of Christ, as Paul, as Peter would say, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word and that you would grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. But to do that, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, we came across 1 Peter 2.1. Therefore, having put aside all the malice and all the deceitful, all the hypocrisy and envy and slander, then like newborn babes. In other words, you've got to deal with the spirit in your human body in terms of all those things to put off the flesh, to put on Christ. And that's consequential. All of these things, all of these things lead you to the obedient, trusting follower of Christ, you're not just living the Christian life. 
you are living the life as a Christian. The exchanged life is Christ in you. And Paul would say at Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you know that? Christ living in me? Well, if you're a baby faith, you don't know what that means. If you're growing in faith and you get distracted, you will forget to know what that means. But if you're listening to the Holy Spirit, you'll say, and the faith, the life that I now live in this human body, I live in this relationship. I live by faith in the Son of God who I know loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, I will love him and give myself back. It's a reciprocal faith. Jesus gives, you give. Jesus Jesus wants you to follow hand in hand. It's an intimate relationship where you get to know him Love him, walk with him, identify with him. That's a mature Christian. Now, there's one more stage I haven't talked about. It's the Christian that's not only established and not only equipped. The further mature person is the one who labors. And he extends out the very kingdom of God because he's following the Spirit. And that's what the Thessalonians were doing. They were witnesses to all the others, and they became examples. They got involved with people's lives in a friendship ministry where they told their story, how Jesus changed them. Our job as Christians, by the way, isn't to change the world. Our job isn't to go out and post truth on error. Our job is not to go out and try to convince people our job is simply to let Jesus work in, my, in our lives in such a way that our story, our testimony, is genuinely real, anchored in the revelation of his Son. And as I'm hiding in him, as I'm staying there, that's the man I am supposed to be. I have been restored in Christ, and that's the only, that's the only thing I need to worry about, to work out my salvation in my relationship with Christ. And that will affect with definite consequences, this relationship. And therefore, if you understand what I'm saying, that there's a lot of people who are all over this map, and therefore, my invitation to you is to think about, it's not, it's not what is best, not what I want to believe. It's not thinking about what the culture is saying, or this critical race theory, or this cancel culture, or this this the LBGTQ and 64 other sexual gender identity things, the most significant question is, as Thomas Sowell said, is not what is best, but who shall decide what is best? And if Jesus is the one I'm following, my decision's already made. He decides what is best, and I'm right with him. That's the mature spirit, the disciples, and so you pass on what you know. That's exciting to me. That's really exciting to me. Therefore, consequential knowledge has significant results. Consequential faith, likewise, has consequences in your relationships this way and your relationships that way. As we move into this story... Again, I want to remind you, be not 
unbelieving. Fading faith becomes flourishing faith, consequential faith, as you align yourself to grow in the Spirit. And that means you understand the gospel. It means you understand the cross. It means you understand the hope of the resurrection. It means you're anchored in the Scriptures. It means prayer becomes a new reality for you. It means that you spend time on a daily basis with the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and and Bible study won't change you. But they put you in a position where the Holy Spirit can change you. So if you're not doing the disciplines, you won't be growing in faith. But if you're being obedient, being a witness, and following the devotional times with Christ, you will grow with that author and the perfecter of your faith. God's in the business of strengthening your faith. God's in the relational knowing that he wants your faith not just to be a system and answer a doctrine. He wants you to know him and his touch, his lead. He wants you to have a conviction that he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do. Therefore, for us to move into that, I leave you with this question. Are you rooted and grounded? Are you growing in faith? Is God teaching your spirit to really align with his? If you're not doing that this summer, then what are you doing? You're too distracted. You need to seek first the kingdom of God. You need to put Christ at the head of your schedule. We face an enemy. And the enemy is not just on the outside. The enemy's on the inside. I need to deal with Jesus one-to-one, mano-a-mano, and let the Spirit take care of me. You do too. That's why we are here. Our worship, our fellowship, our discipleship will become consequential as we follow the Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you a little. Oh, how I wish we would love you more. I wish, Father, that you would give us more sensitivity, that we would have that growth and grace, that we would know what you're all about. But, Lord, the, the world is too much with us. The distractions and things that are justifications. Father, the lion would certainly love to devour us. Father, would your spirit take over? And we ask that you would send a revival, a sense of really helping us grow deep in Christ, that the love of Christ would be consequential in our very lives, and that through our story, you would use us to share Christ with those who don't know you. Again, Father, take this and use this as you desire. And what's of me, just burn it away. But Lord, give us consequential faith. Help us to flourish and grow and mature and that you would touch us in a way that we would be restored and renewed. And we look to you to help us abide in you. And so we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. All right. Our last song. Please stand as we sing our last song. The Solid Rock, hymn number 526.